ABC Debrief for Friday, July 14th, 2023, your one-stop shop for all the news that's fit to print in the nation's capital. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up on the Debrief this week, President Biden gets good news on the economy as he rallies NATO support for Ukraine during a big conference in Lithuania. Retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies will join us to talk about that. We'll also chat with Mark Hamrick from Bank Raid about the latest inflation numbers. The director of the FBI grilled by House Republicans and lawmakers debate government interference in a report on the origins of COVID-19. All that coming up on this week's DC Debrief. But just a reminder, folks, please tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. If you're looking for someplace to get a objective news on what's been happening in the world of politics and Washington, D.C. This is the place to get it. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And please, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a quick review and let us know what you think of the show. It will also help the podcast grow. All right, with all of that out of the way, let's get to the D.C. Debrief for this week. Up first, President Biden and the future of Ukraine in NATO. This week, while in Lithuania, President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met in person to discuss Ukraine's future in NATO and U.S. assistance. And the G7 leaders announced new unprecedented support for Ukraine. Now, one of the more controversial things that the Biden administration has done is that uh, they've decided to give cluster munitions to Ukraine. There are many Democrats uh, people in Biden's own party who disagree with this decision, noting that it is out, it is outlawed in a number of different countries. But um, and we're going to hear from a lawmaker about that coming up in, in just a second. But the Biden administration's the White House's reason for doing this is that Ukraine is running out of ammo and that to continue the counteroffensive, they need these munitions in order to keep going. Now, the big the big news to come out of this is that NATO says Ukraine will not enter NATO for now. All our allies agreed Ukraine's future lies in NATO. That's not a surprise to any of us, I don't think. I hope it's not a surprise to you, Mr. President. Allies all agreed to lift the requirements for membership action plan for Ukraine and to create a path to NATO membership while Ukraine continues to make progress on necessary reforms. But we're not waiting for that process to be finished to make the long-term commitments that we're making to Ukraine's security. Because essentially, and they, they said that, you know, Ukraine needs to work on continuing making improvements in the political structure and, and there are steps that need to be taken in order for that to happen. But at the end of the day, the real reason is that if they allowed Ukraine entry now into NATO, then countries currently aiding Ukraine, like the United States, would technically be at war with Russia. And an escalation could then require the United States to send troops to Ukraine. And that's an escalation none of the countries involved in aiding Ukraine wants. They are, they are very happy to fight this proxy war with Russia as opposed to engaging United States fighter jets, troops, Marines, whatever it is that might be needed to help Ukraine beat back this Russian aggression. If you officially bring them into NATO, it triggers all of the NATO treaties, and then things can spiral even further out of control, which is something that no one wants. Now, at first, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was upset by this decision, and what he wants, he's since softened on that a little bit. He now wants a timeline for conditions being met. 
And I believe that uh, NATO needs us just as we need NATO, and I believe that this is absolutely fair. I am confident that after the war, Ukraine will be in NATO. We'll be doing everything possible to make it happen so that we, would with the United States, would have a same understanding and same vision. One of the other big things to happen was Turkey doing a 180 and dropping their objections to Sweden entering NATO, opening the door for Sweden to enter. Uh, and we'll talk with our guest coming up here in just a second about what Turkey is getting out of this deal. And we'll talk to uh, Admiral Montgomery um, as well on this current situation with Ukraine and what was accomplished in NATO. We'll do that coming up here in just a few minutes. National defense authorization controversy. Now, this is normally a pretty bipartisan vote, while sometimes generating a little controversy. Most in Congress know that they have to pass a, an NDAA, a National Defense Authorization Act. They, they have to get this law passed. These bills include funding for Ukraine, new additions for Space Force, modernizing U.S. missile defense, but it, this essentially provides the money for America's warfighters and for the Pentagon to protect America. The Senate is working on their own version with their own sets of amendments, and that is expected to be a more friendly bipartisan vote. But in the House, the issue once again is an intra-party squabble between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and centrist Republicans. And about a dozen of the more conservative Republicans who are attaching a myriad of amendments to this, more than 1,500 amendments to the NDAA, dealing with some of the main culture war issues and the Pentagon. Here's a sampling, the first from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Amendment number six directs the president to withdraw the U.S. from NATO. My amendment would direct the president withdrawal from NATO. They are not a reliable partner whose defense spending should be paid for by American citizens. And here's another from Congressman Matt Gates. We are having a recruiting crisis. Under most states in this country, people use cannabis under the color of state law. And uh, certainly my amendment would not prohibit the Department of Defense from disallowing cannabis for people who are actually in the military, but for people who seek to be in the military, it seems like an unnecessary gate that we continue to maintain. Now, it's not just Republicans. Democrat Jim McGovern on an amendment seeking to prevent the Biden administration from sending Ukraine those cluster bombs that I mentioned a moment ago. I especially agree on your the, the, the amendment uh, that you're supporting uh, with many of us on, uh, on banning uh, a night using cluster munitions um, in Ukraine. Um, you know, cluster munitions are totally indiscriminate. They don't distinguish between a Russian soldier, a Ukrainian soldier, a woman, a child, or other civilians. Uh, they oftentimes, the unexploded ordinances remain for long periods of time. Um, mudslides, floods, every, move things around. Uh, and there are real reasons why these weapons are banned in over 100 countries. House Rules Committee Chairman Tom Cole said some Republican members who criticize Democrats for using must-pass bills like this as a Christmas tree from which they can hang all these different amendments, that they're now doing the same thing for their pet issues. Each year, the NDAA enables the Congress to set appropriate defense policies to provide guidance and direction to the armed forces, and above all, to set uh, authorization levels for defense funding. Collectively, these efforts provide our warfighters with the training, equipment, 
and strategy necessary to meet any challenge around the globe. Centrist Republicans are concerned if any amendments dealing with abortion pass that, or some of the other culture war issues that Democrats are fiercely against, that this bill won't get the support that it needs from Democrats in order to pass, because there are a number of Republicans who wouldn't vote for this bill even without the amendments or with the amendments on it, who, who do not want to see us putting so much taxpayer money into the Pentagon. And there are some Democrats who obviously would feel the same way as well. Now, Congress has not failed to pass an NDAA in 60 years but listening to lawmakers over the last couple of days, it's entirely possible that that streak will be broken this year. There are amendments seeking to end the Pentagon's rule that would pay for service members to travel out of state for abortions. That's a big one. The very subject that has many upset at Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, who is holding up military promotions until the Pentagon eliminates that practice. One of the consequences is that for the first time in 100 years, the Marine Corps is without a Senate-confirmed leader. That's something Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin noted this week. You know, it's been more than a century since the U.S. Marine Corps has operated without a Senate-confirmed commandant. Smooth and timely transitions of confirmed leadership are central to the defense of the United States and to the full strength of the most powerful fighting force in history. And of course, our military families give up so much to support those who, they, who serve. So they shouldn't be weighed down with any extra uncertainty. And Senator Tuberville says he is no closer. And first of all, Tuberville has been dealing with some controversy this week over a comment that he made about white nationalists not being racists and has since walked those comments back. But one of the other things that has he's been and President Biden has been hitting him hard on this is his continued hold on military promotions, which which affects military families. It does not allow it is, does not allow for uh, the folks who are moving out of certain positions in the military to have a Senate confirmed replacement. Now there will be people working in acting roles in a lot in a lot of these different cases, but not not all of them and there will be some posts that are not filled and it leaves certain families in limbo. This is what some this is what folks who are urging Senator Tuberville to drop this block um, are, are saying are the concept, the negative consequences of this. Of course, you do have some supporters who believe that Senator Tuberville, uh, they believe in, in what he's doing. They believe in making sure that the Pentagon does not pay for service members to travel out of state to get abortions. And so this is an issue that it has not seemed to go away. And the thinking is that it will not go away until Senate leadership, like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, forcefully and publicly demands that Senator Tuberville drop his stance. But that has that does not look like that's coming anytime soon. And in the meantime, uh, you have some uncertainty here with regard to military promotions and some of the uncertainty that family members of these military of these folks in the military are dealing with as they as they wait for these for these transitions to officially take place. Inflation rebound. The Bureau of Labor Statistics June numbers are out and they're on the whole very good. Overall inflation was up 3% over last year, but that's that's still higher than the 2% number the Fed wants, but it's down from last month's 4% number. It is a two-tenths of a percentage increase month over month. So from last last month to this month. Last month, the month-to-month number was 0.4%, so it dropped by half. It's the 12th straight month that inflation has cooled. Now, 
There is some devil in the details here. A lot of this is being driven by gas prices. They're down 26%. Food prices are still up uh, over last year, 6%. Shelters up nearly 8%. Uh, Some of the things that are among the biggest to drop in price from last year, airline fares, which fell 8% from just last month. And they're down a whopping 19% from last year. Egg prices have fallen nearly 14% from last month. No, pardon me. In May, they dropped 14%, and then they dropped an additional 7% this month. A lot of that is because last year there was an avian flu that hit chicken farms really hard, caused egg prices to go way up. That has since dissipated, so egg prices have come down in the last year. Among the biggest risers in prices, besides just some of the, the, the food you see, fruit, excluding apples, bananas, and citrus fruits, jumped 4.7% last month. Tomatoes were up 2.5% last month. Tickets to sporting events up 5.5% from last month. And musical instruments up 2.7% last month. The price of musical instruments and accessories up over 10% from a year ago. So we're going to talk to Mark Hamrick more in depth about some of these numbers coming up in a few minutes as well. House Republicans grill the director of the FBI on Wednesday, the House Judiciary Committee, more specifically the Republicans on that committee, grilled FBI Director Christopher Wray on a number of issues, FISA warrants, the weaponization of the Justice Department, their search for classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, chief among the items that some believe should result in the impeachment of the director. Republican Matt Gates read part of a text message attributed to Hunter Biden during the hearing in which Hunter Biden allegedly pressured a foreign business associate to acquiesce to his demands or incur the wrath of him and his father. And, and Matt Gates wanted to get D- Director Ray's opinion uh, or, or to have him have him state whether he whether or not he thought that this was a shakedown. You seem deeply uncurious about it, don't you? Almost suspiciously uncurious. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not and has que- no well, interest on. in protecting You won't protecting answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown, and everybody knows why you won't answer it. And many Republicans confronted Ray on topics like this. Democrats were confront- confronting Republicans for their confrontations, essentially saying that, that they were making a political football out of Director Ray, The top Democrat on the committee, Jerry Nadler, said those on the other side of the aisle have failed to live up to their obligations and explore real issues of concern and oversight of the FBI with their lines of questioning. For them, this hearing is little more than performance art. It is an elaborate show designed with only two purposes in mind, to protect Donald Trump from the consequences of his actions and to return him to the White House in the next election. Now, it doesn't look like there is an appetite to actually impeach Director Ray at this time, uh, but certainly he was under some, some very strong questioning from Republicans on the committee on Wednesday. COVID-19 origins hearing. A number of virologists who wrote a paper in March of 2020 about the origins of COVID-19 were summoned to a House hearing in which Republicans claimed they were pressured, in which Republicans claimed the authors of these papers were pressured by Dr. Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins at the National Institute of Health to steer away from the idea that COVID-19 came from a Chinese lab and was pushing the theory that they came from a marketplace 
in China. The Republican chairman of the subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic, Brad Wenstrup, defended the line of questioning. Perhaps most troubling, it appears that the author's views on a potential lab leak changed abruptly after the February 1st conference call with doctors Fauci and Collins. The authors continued their pursuit to disprove the lab leak theory and fully support the nature theory, employing faulty assumptions and willfully ignoring circumstantial evidence that tended to support a lab leak hypothesis. Meanwhile, the top Democrat on the committee, Raul Ruiz, said Republicans are attacking the scientists and Dr. Fauci for political reasons. While the facts remain unknown, we should let our expert communities continue to do their jobs while we as lawmakers focus on policies to help prevent the next pandemic and save future lives. But instead of doing that, we are here interrogating researchers who wrote a paper three years ago so that my colleagues can push a partisan narrative and disparage our nation's public health officials and institutions in the process. A recently declassified intelligence report indicated there is still no clear determination or intelligence that proves COVID-19 was either man-made or originated from a Wuhan market where wild animals were sold and butchered. Republicans have subpoenaed private conversations between the scientists to get a clearer picture on whether Dr. Fauci and anyone else at NIH interfered with the initial report that was written back in March of 2020. Democrats, of course, claiming are outraged at, at that request, saying these are private conversations that uh, should not be made public to lawmakers. All right, now let's take the first of our two deep dives on the DC debrief for this week. Well, joining me to talk about everything that happened over in Lithuania this past week with President Biden, NATO, Ukraine, is retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery. He's an expert uh, and the senior director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Admiral Montgomery, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. How are you, sir? Uh, thank you for having me today. It's it's great to talk to you because there was obviously a lot packed in to these few days over in Lithuania. And I'd like to start with Ukraine and the commitment that it appears G7 member states are willing to give to Ukraine, kind of an unprecedented amount of support that they're willing to give Ukraine as they as they fight off this this Russian aggression. Can you just talk a little bit about what it is that the United States and our NATO allies have agreed to do to secure Russia's defense? I'm sorry, Ukraine's so, defense, not Russia's defense. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. Uh, good correction. The um, So look, I, I, we've done a lot. Uh, the United States has done a lot. Our European partners have done a lot. Japan's done a lot. Another G7 country. Um, basically, you know, we tend to talk about the military assistance. And the United States is, you know, forty billion dollars or so into uh, assistance to Ukraine. Uh, we're about two dollars for every one dollar of Europe in that kind of money and, and military money. If you flip it and look at humanitarian money, it, it reverses. It's about two to one European dollars and Japanese dollars to American dollars. Uh, so that makes sense. Um, I like being the ones giving the military dollars. Dollars it means they're getting mil U.S. military equipment. Um, you know, just as an aside, I would say you know the United States Army has never looked newer than it does today because they have passed every uh, aging Javelin, Stinger, HIMARS, uh, guided missile launcher rocket uh, to the Ukrainians who've used them successfully in combat and 
are now procuring new ones with that Ukrainian a, uh, assistance money uh, from U.S. Uh, contractor, you know, factories and, uh, you, know, uh, throughout, you know, spread throughout the United States. And so there are some, um, you know, benefits to this for the United States. But broadly, this is about arming Ukraine uh, to hold, you know, to to um, fight off the, you know, the illegal um, Russian invasion. So what I'd say is it's a significant amount of military assistance, um, humanitarian assistance, and then the beginnings of financial or economic assistance, because the amount of damage Russia has done to the Ukrainian economy is actually dwarfs the kind of spending we've done now on military humanitarian assistance. I think it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars minimum. Uh, and Europe is starting to think about how they're going to handle that over the next uh, you know, decade as uh, whenever these, conf- these hostilities end and we begin to rebuild the uh, Ukrainian economy. Now, NATO countries stopped short of admitting Ukraine into NATO for, for obvious reasons, right? I mean, if you do that, then essentially NATO is at war with Russia, and that requires a whole different level of commitment from the G7 countries, the United States, and, and all of that. But is, can you describe some of the reluctance, you know, and, and flesh that out a little bit for folks who basically look at all of this assistance that we're going to be giving Ukraine and say we're, we're essentially treating them as if they're a NATO country with, with, the, with the level of, of help that we're going to be giving them in terms of, like you said, humanitarian, rebuilding the economy and, and the military. What's, what's the difference? Why, why can't we take that extra step right now? So I think they reached a, a pretty good middle ground here. So, I mean, obviously they could have offered NATO membership right at the moment, or they could have said, you're going to go have to go through the normal traditional, what's called um, military action plan, you know, half a decade long process that most of the Eastern European countries went through. Instead, what they were told is we're going to throw out the military action plan, but we're not going to start your membership timeline today. Instead, we're going to give you a, secu- a, a series of renewed security guarantees uh, about how we'll support you today and how we'll support you if Russia were to reinitiate hostilities after after this conflict is over. Um, so they have strong security guarantees and they have a, a quick path to NATO membership once the hostilities are over. And I think that's the I think they struck the right kind of, uh, you know, warm porridge answer there. Because either of the other two would have been a very tough thing. Having them join NATO while in conflict, you know, there's a question of does that just trigger Article 5 or all of NATO's in the conflict with troops on the ground, which is not something everyone was willing to accept. But making them go through a military access, a military action plan would have said after hostilities are over and, and considering what the economy would have looked like and the military would have looked like after combat, it could have been five to 10 years. So I think they'll get an accelerated NATO membership after hostilities end. And that's one of the ways that we guarantee against a further Russian invasion in some at some future date. What is your take on the White House's decision to give Ukraine uh, these cluster bomb munitions? Well, listen, I, I think the White House has uh, eventually given Ukraine everything it needs. The problem is the word eventually. I mean, they do this in an extremely iterative, slow process. So they were slow to deliver the guided missile launcher rounds, the extended range artillery. They were slow to deliver the tanks, uh, which, which, which unlocked the European tanks coming. And it's really European tanks that are involved in the counteroffensive right now, almost 200 of them. Um, they were slow to, to really allow the spigot on the F-16. They have not allowed the ATACMS, which is the long-range artillery, which is absolutely crucial to Ukraine right now. They could use it desperately in this counteroffensive. And they were sh- slow on this cluster munitions. And, and, and I know it must have really torn at them to give it. 
Um, I mean, historically, Democratic administrations have been more, more opposed to cluster munitions than Republican. Um, look, we they need the cluster munitions to break up the heavily entrenched um, Russian positions because we don't have sufficient amounts of 155 millimeter uh, ammunition or even the kind of howitzers, I mean, the, 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 uh, the guns to fire them. So the, the cluster munitions will help loosen up the Russian um, uh, dug-in forces when the, when the Ukrainians eventually find the salient they want and kind of drive to break the Russian forces in half between their southern and eastern invasion forces. And one of the things I'll say about them is that the, the percentages you see used about cluster munition dud rates are extremely uh, dubious. Um, to use the dud rates from Laos and Cambodia 50 years ago is inappropriate. And, and to use the dud rates from Russian weapons uh, is inappropriate. You should use the dud rates from U.S. weapons uh, uh, testing and manufacturers. And I think it's somewhere it's it may not be as low as the under 2% they claim, but it's more in the 4 to 6% rate. What it's not is the 40% rate that you hear, you know, parroted around by uh, opponents of this decision. These are needed. The battlefield will be cleaned up. There's tons of unexploded ordnance. It's much larger already all spread all over Ukraine. We're going to have a massive cleanup anyway. Let's give them the weapon they need to breach the Russian forces, develop the salient, and drive through and, 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 and put a significant tactical defeat on the Russian army. So how do you think Russia is responding to this? So all of the guarantees that the Western nations are, are agreeing to give to Ukraine, it seems pretty clear Russia is dealing not just with Ukraine, but but dealing with all of NATO. How did how do they view their reluctant the the NATO's reluctance to bring Ukraine into the fold now, but at the same time, like you said, this middle ground where they where Russia now can see that the the West is going to be behind Ukraine for as long as this takes. If there's any sense of self awareness in Russia, I mean, Putin has to understand he completely screwed up. I mean, in this regard, you know, he was conducting a successful gray zone operation against Ukraine over the last decade. He was able with little green men to seize Crimea. He seized uh, 20 plus percent of uh, eastern Ukraine in, in the in the Donbass regions. And for whatever reason, he decided to turn this into a kinetic conflict. And in the meantime, he's driven Finland and Sweden into NATO. He's uh, guaranteed he has spurred the um, the uh, increase in defense spending like nothing that uh, President Obama, or President Trump or President Biden convince our European partners to do despite despite serious efforts, particularly by President Trump. And uh, and he is for, you know, he's forced us to uh, provide the 40 billion of U.S. and 20 billion of European equipment into Ukraine. It's broken the back of his army. It's revealed the weaknesses in the logistics of his of his of his overall military effort. It's depleted his crews and ballistic missiles. I mean, in every possible way, shape or form, this is this has revealed the kind of like the uh, corruption and the uh, and the failure and the morbidity in the Russian state. And so you know, I would have to say he doesn't feel pretty good. Now, he's not self-aware, so he's probably sitting back, apparently having lunch with Progrosian, who ran a mini coup two weeks ago. I mean, you know, logic is not is not the coin of the realm in the Russian Empire right now. Last question for you here, sir. We also saw Turkey drop their opposition to Sweden being allowed into NATO. So after decades of neutrality, it appears Sweden will officially become a member. Why did Turkey decide to do this 180? Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, is a very transactional leader. Um, he uh, 
you know, saw the opportunity, you know, he saw the opportunity to get things like the F-16 deal from the United States, which he desperately needs after screwing up the F-35 deal when he, when he bought the SA-400s. He saw an opportunity to get Sweden to take a tougher stance towards the Kurdistan, any kind of, you know, supposed terrorist activity in Kurdistan, and to get some, relieve some pressure on his, e, on his European Union bid. Um, so once he'd gotten enough in the transactional benefit plan, he agreed to this. Now, be careful. He agreed to have his parliament look at it in October. Mm. So for the next three okay. to four months, he's going to get an opportunity to see the Senator Menendez allow the F-16. He's the head of the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Does he allow the F-16 sale to go through? He's going to get a chance to see how Sweden continues to deal with the Kurds. He gets to see how the EU, European Union treats Turkish membership. Um, but then there'll be a vote in uh, in um, October, and I and I think Sweden will be you know a full member of NATO. I think the the Hungarian one was just a lesser included. Uh, that'll that'll clear before the Turkish um, vote. So I'm I'm comfortable that you know this was a transactional deal. He got what he felt was the maximum he could get, uh, you know, for his uh, releasing, uh, you know, his hold on Sweden, and, and then he executed the deal. Well, it's a really, really interesting time right now with NATO in this in this area of the world, and I know you've been writing a lot about it. Uh, how can people find your work over at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, Rear uh, Admiral Montgomery? Thanks. So myself, Brad Bowman, um, Ryan Probst, John Hardy particularly have been writing. John Hardy puts out something almost every week. Uh, we're uh, at um, uh, www.fdd.org. And, uh, and you can see all of our writing there. But I particularly keep an eye out for John Hardy and his writing on Ukraine each week. Well, Admiral Montgomery, I really appreciate your time, your expertise that, that you brought to us today. Thank you so much for being on the DC Debrief. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Joining me to talk about the latest inflation numbers, some good news for the president and the White House is Mark Hamrick from Bankrate. Uh, he's joining us to help give us the inside scoop on, on what's going on with these numbers, which can sometimes be uh, a little bit confusing. Sometimes there's a little devil in the details rather than just looking at the big numbers. So, Mark, thanks for coming back on the DC Debrief. How are you? Great to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. And so, we got good news, right? I mean, these 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 numbers are trending in the right direction. You go from four percent year over year last month to three percent this last month. Uh, I know there's some I know there's some underlying numbers that are better than others. Can you just kind of give us a quick snapshot of of what it is that we saw with with this latest data? Sure. Uh, you know, I think this is one of those things where you know the statistics the the stats can be complicated, but uh, consumers have a pretty, I would say, generally solid awareness of what's going on with the prices because it's something that they interact with on a regular basis. And I've obviously been frustrated by uh, really going back for a couple of years now. We think last summer when the year-over-year -year increase in the consumer price index peaked at 9.1%, and that was the highest inflation we'd seen in 40 years, Thankfully, as you say, uh, that year-over-year -year change in the latest read on this uh, measure of prices at the retail level, up just 3%, and actually that was rounded up. It, it, the, the true number is something like 2.97%, uh, just in the sense of, you know, I was thinking, well, this number will probably have a three-handle, and that's the way it, it is reported, but true, truthfully, it's, it's 2.97%. Uh, statistically insignificant, but but nevertheless interesting, at least to me. So, uh, you know, we're in a better place. This was has been both better 
and better than expected news on inflation, both the retail read and the follow-up read of uh, producer prices, the wholesale price index, and the year-over-year change on the PPI, quite remarkable. It's up just one-tenth of one percent. And you know, you would tend to look at that as, as perhaps even being the better news in the sense of we're thinking about prices as they are farther away, not yet reaching the consumer, and, and that is trending even better. So you know, the Federal Reserve has a 2% inflation target. We're not there yet, uh, and uh, but we're in a better place. And I think you mentioned at the outset as well that some of the things that are uh, perhaps most relevant in looking at all these things, uh, the price of food remains elevated, the price or cost of shelter, we need a place to live, uh, remains elevated. New car prices are still higher, uh, car insurance is higher used car prices are coming down and energy except for electricity is down. So a lot of these things are moving in a much more uh, favorable pattern, I would say. Given the numbers that we're seeing now, there's always been worry that we're heading towards a recession, that the Fed may have to keep raising rates to a point where it would trigger a recession. But now we're starting to hear more belief maybe that we could be getting a soft landing here, that maybe we can get back to um, a solid economy, solid economic growth without having to incur a recession, without having to have that unemployment rate jump up. Do you see that as a more realistic possibility now than maybe you did a month ago or two months ago? Well, a recession does not seem to be imminent. Uh, We will always have a recession. That's part of the economic cycle. The question is when and the depth and duration or severity of it. Uh, And to your point, yes. I mean, every, every single data point that suggests that growth is continuing, that the economy is relatively stable, uh, is sort of like, uh, to keep the landing analogy going, it's like, as they say among pilots, any landing you could walk away from is a good one. Well, uh, so far we haven't had a landing per se for the economy because growth has persisted at roughly a 2% annual rate of late from best we can tell. And uh, And so that's a good thing. But I would note, uh, we do a lot of work on surveys of bank rate, both of the general public, uh, essentially consumers, uh, everyday people, uh, as well as quote unquote experts. And we just published a series of stories that was uh, written by my colleague, uh, Sarah Foster, uh, based on our quarterly economist survey. And among the things that the economists say collectively is that the risk of recession over the next year remains elevated. They're putting those odds at roughly one in two. Uh, And that's lower, actually, than it had been in the last, I think, three surveys. I'm thinking the first quarter of 2022, they had put that risk at one in three, and then it had gone above 50-50 for, I think, the following three quarters. So that's still pretty high. But I also like to say, you know, that old glass half full, half empty analogy, you know, when the glass is half full, it's actually half empty as well. And, uh, and, and. The reason I say that is because 50-50 means that it's not a certainty that we have a recession on that next year. So obviously something to continue to watch. And one of the other things that we're watching is what the Fed does next. It seems clear that inflation is heading in the right direction. I mean, we're a, we're a big drop from 9% a year ago to now 3%. It seems like we're pretty close to, to 2%, and even though, even though we're not there yet. So it sounds like the Fed is going to raise interest rates the next time around. Do you agree with that assessment? And if so, could that be the last time? I mean, obviously, we don't know what other data is lurking in the weeds to perhaps jump up and and surprise everyone. But if we continue in this trajectory here, 
do we need a whole lot more interest rate increases by the Fed in order to get inflation back down to 2%? You're absolutely right, John. The expectation is that at the end of July meeting, the Fed will raise rates by the slightest amount, uh, one quarter of 1% or 25 basis points. And that's uh, within the context of 500 basis points of monetary policy tightening that has occurred since March of last year. And so uh, the bulk of that medicine has been administered. And although it's sort of nerdy or technical, uh, central bankers talk about monetary policy or you know their primary tool in monetary policy being an adjustment of interest rates as working with long and variable lags. Well, what does that really mean? Well, what it means is that uh, certain parts of the economy feel the impacts of these rate hikes uh, more quickly than others. And again, we began this in March of last year. And let's think about the fact that as inflation was raging out of control, and that's why the Fed sort of uh, hopped on that uh, rate raising bandwagon finally, um, a number of different things occurred, including a bear market in stocks, the crash of cryptocurrency, which has sort of uh, recovered a, a good deal since, and a huge slowdown on the housing market. And by the way, this week at bank rate, bank rate our average for the 30-year fixed rate, uh, sort of the workhorse of home purchase financing, is back at a level that was last seen in November at 7.07%. So that's going to have further uh, insult to injury with respect to housing affordability. But um, all these trends that could, are, are, are worth watching. And to wrap it up on the Fed piece, uh, I do think because the following meeting for them will be in September, they'll have a lot of data to digest. Uh, and, and I think that because of those variable lags with monetary policy and the thought that a lot of this has yet to totally work its way through the system, um, the other part is that the Fed believes that the banking sector was slowing lending, which is absolutely uh, something we're seeing. And part of this is related to what happened with the bank failures in March. Um, that will essentially do some of the Fed's heavy lifting for it with respect to slowing the economy. So the rate hikes that have already taken place, at least one more yet to come, and slowing lending as well as the fact that the consumer is sort of, in a sense, running out of some gas to the extent mm -hmm. that they've depleted some of the so-called excess savings they accumulated during the pandemic. I think all those things will, uh, will mean that the Fed thinks that its job is, is pretty close to being done or, or may well be done with respect to further rate hikes. Right, because one of the things I've seen from, from some, some, some folks is, is, is the cure worse than the disease, right? I mean, if you're at 3% and you're all, and you're moving in the right direction, can you live with 3% inflation for a period of six months to a year and it, without raising the interest rate and just keep the unemployment where it is, keep the rest of the, econo the economy moving where it is? Because one of the other things we saw was that uh, wage growth outpaced the rate of inflation by 1.2% in this last month. And if that continues, if those numbers continue to trend in the right direction, is it still necessary to continue raising rates or would that or would the the cure to get back down to two percent would that be worse than the disease the the resulting recession be worse than the unemployment that would result from it if we're already moving in a good direction yeah good observations good question there uh and ultimately we don't know right and i mean meaning that a monetary policy is a blunt instrument it's not surgical uh and uh and some of this is really more art than science. Yeah. So uh, it could well be the, the case as we get on down the would-be road that the Fed would have raised rates too much. But 
uh, sort of across the board, Federal Reserve officials are saying that inflation remains too high. Uh, and there are other measures of inflation, of course, as well, not just the ones that we're talking about. But um, what, what Chairman Powell says and would say is that when inflation is high, the economy is not working well for anyone, or I might paraphrase it and say everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I think that's right. And 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 but, you know, you make a very good observation there as well, that so-called real wages or wages adjusted for inflation are now in positive territory. And that may well continue to be the case if inflation remains low and lower and wages remain at least somewhat elevated or at least in positive territory. Um, that's that's a dynamic that wage earners and consumers have not experienced much of over the past two, two and a half years. Last question for you on this. Obviously, in the last year, it's we've seen inflation slow tremendously, 9% a year ago to 3%. The target is to get to 2%. It would seem, based on that level of drop from 12 months ago to now, that it shouldn't be much of a problem to get from 3% to 2%. But can you just describe maybe some of the difficulty in traversing that last 1% to get to where they want to be? Yeah. And, you know, from a sort of discussion among economist types uh, standpoint, it's pretty simple. And that is that services inflation, which now is sort of what's doing uh, most of the um, aggravation of inflation, so to speak, tends to be uh, the word is stickier, meaning that it's harder to sort of bring down. And, and that may well continue to be the case. And the other part is, and we didn't even get into this yet, but, you know, we need to think about the fact as well that there are going to be many, many dollars still flowing into the U.S. economy uh, having to do with the Inflation Reduction Act, the uh, CHIPS Act, uh, a lot of spending on infrastructure uh, and, and spending that you know has already been agreed to. Um, and, and that is sort of going to provide some foundation to jobs creation really over the next decade or so. So um, mm-hmm. not necessarily a huge contributor to inflation, but, but just something to think about as sort of providing a foundation. But uh, um, I'm optimistic. I think there is a, a good chance that we could get out of this relatively unscathed because the inflation itself was pretty bad. Uh, and, you know, we also have experienced some pretty severe recessions in this country in the last couple of go rounds. We had a peak of uh, unemployment of 14.7% early in the pandemic and 10% after the great financial crisis. No one is predicting uh, a recession of that type or those types next time around. And we'll pray that that's the case. Yeah. Well, this is continuing uh, to move forward and make sure you're reading everything Mark Hamrick and all of his colleagues over at Bankrate are doing by going to bankrate.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the DC Debrief to help straighten this all out for us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. And now the closer. The U.S. announced this week that it has destroyed the country's last remaining chemical weapons. That's according to The Washington Post. They did so ahead of a September 23rd deadline that was part of a 1997 international convention. The aging rocket filled with sarin nerve gas that was incinerated in Kentucky this week was the last of about three and a half million chemical munitions that have been destroyed since Congress ordered them to do so back in 1986. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Please make sure to tell a friend or family member once again about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief.